And if you have your Bibles, open to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, and our text for this evening will be verses 2 through 13. Hughes Oliphant Old wrote concerning Christian worship these words, quote, We worship God because God created us to worship Him. Worship is at the center of our existence, at the heart of our reason for being. If you read any well-known catechism, most of them start with the question, what is the chief end of man? Or why were we created? The answer in most all of them is is this, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That sounds a lot like worship to me. And when we think about worship, Paul gives us a means for how we can do that. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. And so my aim for this evening is that for all of us, with unveiled faces, the redeemed of God, that we would gaze upon the Son of God revealed in His Word, that we would see the Son in all His glory, and we would worship. Follow along with me in Mark chapter 9, picking up in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them. And His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elisha. For he did not know what to say, for, he was ter- for, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This ends the reading of the Word of God. I've titled tonight's message very cleverly, Jesus, the Son of God. Because the main point of this passage is Jesus, the Son of God, as we will see here. We are to see from this passage here that Jesus Christ is the perfect Son of God by whom all the law and prophets bear witness, who also suffers for the salvation of His people. 
So as we would approach even this text, we need to do a little bit of linking together from the previous section. As you notice here in verse 2, the setting that we have here, we are told after six days. Mark is bringing together the previous section and he's pulling this together. This is a week. What we have here is an, is an incredible week in the life of the disciples. It begins with Jesus, well, it really begins with Jesus asking the question, who do people say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ. Matthew adds, the son of the living God. But to clear up any confusions of this messianic fervor, this, this idea that Jesus is going to usher in the new kingdom of God in the present sense, the way they thought it was going to be, Jesus, Jesus provides some clarity. To be the Messiah means that he is going to suffer and he is going to die. That it is going to be a cross before glory. That it is going to be suffering before uh, exaltation, humility before exaltation. He wants to make it clear to be a follower of him means to be willing to die. So he makes this very clear as he raises the stakes. As he says to the crowds, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so Jesus wants to make it very clear what commitment to the gospel looks like. And so then from this section of the identity of Christ, Peter calling him the Christ, Jesus giving us the commitment of what it's going to take to be a follower of him, that it will cost you everything. Then we walk into this scene six days later. And after six days, what we notice here is Jesus is doing a further manifestation of who he is. We will, we will see the Son in his glory. We will see the Son in his identity. And then he will display and disclose his suffering at the end here too. But he is doing this to strengthen the faith of his followers. So after six days, what we notice here, first and foremost, is what we will see is the Son's glory is displayed. We see here that Peter and James and John are taken with Jesus. They are often referred to as the inner circle of the disciples. We know who Peter is. James and John, the sons of thunder, these brothers. These were the, all the ones that were in their fishing business. These are the ones that jump out of the boat, literally leaving their father in the boat as they go after Jesus. James is the first to die of the apostles. John's the last to die. And this is the inner circle of three. And they are on, they find themselves, as Jesus has taken them, up to a high mountain. High places throughout the scriptures are just places of worship. It's important to know that. This is a place of worship. According to Luke, the parallel account here, they are up there to pray. Jesus takes these three and they go up to this mountain to pray. But we see here there's a peculiar event that takes place. More than peculiar... And we notice here, he takes them up onto a high mountain, and in verse 2, we read that he was transfigured before them. What does this mean? That Jesus was transfigured. Literally, this word is metamorpho, from which you get the, the, the English word metamorphosis, this complete transformation that they saw of Jesus. This word is used four times in your Bible. Twice in reference to Jesus in his transfiguration. Once in the, in the scripture passage that I had just read in the introduction where Paul talks about us being, as we are beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed or transfigured in that way. 
Another time you would find this word, the only other time, would be in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. That we are to be transformed through the renewing of our minds. So twice this word refers to Jesus in this event. And twice it refers to what happens to us as we are growing in the likeness of Jesus. And it's important to understand there is a distinction But one is dealing with our moral transformation into the likeness of Jesus, and one is dealing with Jesus in his glory. And that's what we're going to see here, is Jesus' transformation in his glory. And so right now, what we notice here in verse 2, as he's gone up to this high mountain and he is transfigured before them, Mark will give us the details of what this actually looks like. We see that in verses 3 and 4. Jesus is radically transformed before them. But it is not as though he is becoming something different. This is important to understand. In fact, what is happening in this scene, it's as though Jesus is lifting the veil of who he is. And they're actually seeing the Son in all his glory. In his humanity, his glory is veiled. So as he goes up to this mountain with them, this transformation, this transfiguration is a picture of who Jesus is and who he's always been from eternity past. And so as he comes up there, his glory is veiled in humanity. He lifts it in this moment. And we see first that his glory is displayed in his appearance. Verse 3, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Understand, this is not a fairy tale. This is not a make-believe story. This isn't something from the movies. This is a real event, a supernatural event that there were eyewitnesses to. There were many eyewitnesses here. We must keep this in mind and not to, to make this seem like fiction to us because of our familiarity as well. His clothes are radiant, intensely white, as no one could bleach them. What does this mean? What are we seeing here as we would behold the Son of God in this passage? Well, white is purity. This is the blazing purity of Jesus. This is without blemish. He is the Lamb of God without spot or blemish. This is his absolute holiness displayed before him. There's there's not enough words to describe it. It's the Son in all his glory that they are able to behold here. This is such a passage of grace. This is such a passage that Jesus and the Father would graciously reveal this to his disciples. Now remember, much of Mark's gospel is coming through the oral preaching and teaching of Peter. Peter is the firsthand primary source for much and almost the majority of Mark's documents or Mark's writings here. So it's almost as though you can hear Peter teaching this event And speaking through Mark as we read this passage. It's as though Peter is trying to find the words to describe this event. He was radically changed. I was there. His clothes, I mean, there's not bleach in this world that could make it as white as I... I've never seen anything like it. White is an understatement, but that's the only color that I could come up with. That Peter would say here. As he literally, as Mark says, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach him. It's as though Peter is saying, Mark, what I saw was literally out of this world. Blazing purity. Unbelievable. Unbridled holiness. This is the Son's glory displayed in his appearance. 
But we also see that the Son's glory is displayed in his associates. Notice in verse 4. First you see it in his attire and his appearance. But then, verse 4, And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. This is an interesting scene here. Things are getting stranger. We must ask the question here, why these two? Why is it that Elijah, Moses and Elijah are the ones that appear to Jesus? And it says they were talking with him. But what were they talking about? Luke records that they were talking to Jesus about his soon coming departure in Jerusalem. They were talking to Jesus about the upcoming death of Christ. That's what is taking place here. But why these two? How do we see the Son in his glory through Elijah and Moses? Why not Abraham and David? Why couldn't it have been Abel and Noah? Why not Samuel and Isaiah? What is so significant about Moses and Elijah being the ones there? It's a big deal. It is very significant because of who these two represent. When you think about Moses, Moses represents the law. Moses represents the Pentateuch. Elisha, he represents the prophets. The presence of these two with Jesus on this mountain conversing with him, it is these two that bear witness to the glory of Jesus. Remember, the day of Jesus' resurrection, the women run to the tomb and they say, he's not here. And so some of these inner circle guys, they run out too. And they see that he's not in the tomb. He is not here. He has risen. A little later on in the day, there's some other disciples. And they're walking on a road seven miles to the north to Emmaus. And this strange figure comes alongside them as they're walking. And they're talking about the events that had taken place in Jerusalem. And this strange figure next to them says, well, what's happened? And they say, where you been, man? Don't you know what's happened around these places in the last seven days? Like, and so they're explaining what's been going on. So this strange figure that they didn't recognize looks at them and says, whoa, you guys haven't been paying attention, have you? Because this strange figure is the resurrected Jesus. And he comes alongside them. And as he's walking with them, he says these words on the road to Emmaus, which was the one walk I wish I could take in all the scriptures. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And notice what Jesus does on the road to Emmaus. On the road to Emmaus. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. So why Moses and Elijah appearing on the top of this mountain? Because they are the witnesses. They are the ones that bear witness to the coming glory of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The Son is glorified by the witness of the Scriptures because it all points to Him. I'm going to remind you what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, you search the Scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life but it is they that bear witness about me. Moses writes of Jesus in Deuteronomy 18.15. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from from your brothers. It is him you shall listen. That's interesting that Moses would say that thousands of years before this scene. 
Moses says, there's going to be a prophet that's going to rise up from among you, an Israelite, a Hebrew, a Jew, and it is to him you shall listen. What does the voice from the cloud say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Moses is pointing to Christ in Deuteronomy. The voice of the Father from heaven is confirming the Christ in their presence. They bear witness to the glory of Christ as the Son of God. Now imagine, imagine you're Peter or James or John, and you were the privileged one to sit there, to be there in this moment. And you're seeing this take place. It's interesting, they recognize Moses. There's no pictures. There's no, there's no, they're not like, oh, that's his Instagram. I can see that they match up. No, there's no, but they recognize who he is. They recognize this is Elisha. And they're sitting there. Imagine if you were one of them. How would you react? This is out of this world. They know him. It's as though Jesus has a previous relationship with these two. This isn't the first time they're meeting him. This is the eternality of the Son. They've been with Jesus in glory already. They weren't taken aback that they were there with Christ. But if you were there, astonished, without words, terrified, this is why John writes in his gospel, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Eyewitnesses. They are eyewitnesses of his glory. So what we see here first in these first few verses is the glory of the Son displayed through his appearance and through his associates. Next, we would see the Son's identity declared. But we get this kind of Peter moment. Peter has to be there, right? We have this Peter moment in verses 5 and 6. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. He's beside himself. He doesn't know what to do. But when Peter doesn't know what to do, he often talks. Peter should maybe sometimes not talk. So this is what he's doing. He's saying, Rabbi, it's, it's good that we're here. I'm a fisherman, but I can build shelters. Let's stay here a while. You all can get your own. I'll build one for you and one for you. It's like he's telling James and John, you get this one and you get this one and I'll get this one. We don't need anywhere to live. We don't need any shelter, but you, this is good that we're here. Have you ever been around somebody that maybe talks too much? Maybe you're one of them. We look at this and we're like, Peter, shh, Peter, shh, just, just quiet down, Peter. Please, it's as though Peter is preaching or retelling this event to Mark, and he's like, listen, I was so terrified. I was so terrified to not speak, so words just came out, and I don't know what happened. It's interesting when when Matthew is recording this event, it says that while Peter was still speaking, the the voice from the cloud interrupts him. At least he knows when God speaks from a cloud, be quiet. Rightfully so. Peter is interrupted by a bigger, higher, more authoritative verse, uh, uh, voice. And you see that in verse 7. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen 
to him. This is the son's identity declared. And it is declared by the father. Now the only other time this happened was at Jesus' baptism. But at his baptism, the voice is speaking to him. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now the voice is not speaking to Jesus. It is declaring the identity of Jesus to the disciples. The whole point of this Mount of Transfiguration was for the disciples to be there. It is for them to hear this, and it is for them to declare this when the time is right. It is for them to be eyewitnesses so that we, in turn, will become earwitnesses of their testimony. But he is declared by the Father, and it is directed to Peter, James, and John. They were already terrified. They were terrified before the voice came. What about now? Imagine if you were up there on that mountain at this point. I don't think there are words to describe. They are hearing the very voice of God speaking to them in the presence of the Son of God. But let's just keep adding it. Then they have the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, and they have the greatest, one of the greatest men of the Old Testament. They're like, they're like on the Mount Rushmore over here. And what do we see here? They are, they are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. The magnitude of this event, of what they are going through here at the Mount of Transfiguration, cannot be overstated. It is as though in this moment they are in a slice of heaven. The Son in all his glory, the Father testifying to the Son, the presence of Elijah, the presence of Moses. It might be the closest picture of heaven we see before getting there. But following the identity declared, we would notice here of the, of, of the Father It is the duty required. He says, listen to him. Here's the command to obey. When you're you're reading through a passage and you're thinking about, okay, what is this this passage about? What is the meaning? What what am I to get out of this? We look for promises to claim. We look for maybe behaviors that we must repent of or, or, or take on. Or we look at commands to obey. Here's the command of the passage. He tells Peter, James, and John, listen to him. But we must, in right, to make right application of this command, we must see here all the things that are taking place here. Jesus is still the Son of God. Jesus still possesses all authority and honor. So this command remains binding upon all people. Not just to Peter, James, and John. No, because as the virtue of the purpose of the command is because he is the beloved son, he hasn't ceased to be the beloved son. Therefore, the command is still in play. So as it is directed to Peter, James, and John, it also falls upon us. We are to listen to him. We are to hear the word of Christ. And we are to obey the word of Christ. We are to apply the word of Christ. We are to live this word of Christ. We are to share this word of Christ. More on this application when we get to that. But we also want to notice here that once this is declared, it appears that everything goes back to normal. Look at verse 8. Suddenly looking around, they saw no one, no longer anyone with them but Jesus only. So the high point of this mountaintop experience is the declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. Therefore, he deserves to be listened to. Therefore, he deserves worship. Therefore, he deserves obedience. Therefore, he deserves your love. Therefore, he deserves your life and all that you are. 
So here's the purpose. The purpose for those three to go up the mountain was to strengthen and to confirm their faith. This is an act of grace. It is to strengthen the trust of Peter, James, and John as they follow Jesus because the road ahead is going to be challenging. They're on their way to Jerusalem, and so they needed to see this, though they don't understand, and they still will struggle along the way. Now, I want to make a point here that sometimes we tend to spiritualize this text very much so. We talk about the mountaintop experience. We talk about having mountaintop experiences with God. And let me be clear, there are times that we have heightened and real experiences with the Lord through our Christian life. But I also want to be very clear, we will never have this. This is a one-time event that they went through. This isn't to be repeated. You don't see this ever repeated in the scriptures anywhere else. Not even all the disciples were invited to this event. Of the 12, only three got to experience this event. And so while Peter had the experience here, being present when the son's identity was declared, I want us to understand that we have something greater. We have something greater than the Mount of Transfiguration. We have this. And to neglect this, to look for the mountain, is to neglect the whole point of why you have this. Peter tells us that, who was on the mountain. Let me remind you of what he says. In 2 Peter, he's writing about this event. And he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then in verse 17, for, we, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have, here it is, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. He's saying, yes, we were on the mountain. Yes, we had that experience. But let me tell you something. That experience was to confirm the word. We have the confirmation of the word. And this is what you would do well to pay attention to. Not seeking the experience, seeking the word. Seeking Christ in his word. And so when we think about this event that takes place, we must understand it in light of the whole canon of Scripture. As we have the Son's identity declared here by the Father, how do we know this? We have the Son's identity declared by the Word of God. And that's important for us as we seek to live faithful lives in obedience to Him. So we have seen here the Son's glory is shown. We see that the Son's identity is declared and then finally, verses 9 and 9 through 13, we see the son's suffering is disclosed. Follow along with me here in verse 9. He says, As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. It's important. It's almost as Jesus is saying, Hey, we're gonna, we're, this is a reality check. 
You know, Peter had the great confession, you are the Christ. There's this high moment, and Jesus says, okay, but it's going to, it's going to come through suffering. It's going to come through the cross. The, the kingdom will come through, through death and rising again. They see Jesus transfigured on the mountain. There's this really high experience, and Jesus says, let me remind you, I'm going to die. So that they would understand and have a whole gospel. And what Jesus is telling them as he's coming down here and charging them not to tell of this now, deposit this in your mind because the day is coming when you will declare this. You will declare all of these things. Peter did it, right, in 2 Peter. But Jesus says, now is not the time. You are eyewitnesses and you will create earwitnesses, but first I must suffer. First, I must fulfill my mission. First, I must fulfill my passion. I must do for, uh, uh, the, must fulfill and do the mission for which I have been sent. And then comes this proclamation. Hebrews 2.9, it's that was Jesus saying, I must taste death first for all men. John records the words of Jesus in Revelation, where Jesus says, I am the first and the last and the living one, I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Death first, and then rising from the dead, victory after. How do the disciples respond to this? Bewilderment. Their minds, I mean, this, think about the last week for them. This has been a crazy week in their lives. They don't know. They keep the matter to themselves. They're questioning, what does this rising from the dead mean? You say, well, can't you go back just six days ago? Didn't you hear what he said? They're not getting it at the time. So they're, they're, they're trying to get their bearings, and they're like, okay, rising from the dead. Um, and so what they then start to reveal is the confusion that everybody has who's a Christian when it comes to the end times. They are like, okay, let's put together a sequence of events here so that we can get our eschatology right. We can know, well, well wait, wait a minute. A suffering Messiah and dying, but what, wait, the scribes say that Elijah is supposed to come first. So should we be looking to this? What should we be looking at? They, they don't want to talk to him about the rising from the dead. They're, they're, they're leaving that to themselves. But they ask the question in verse 11. They say, well, why do the scribes say first that Elijah must come? Is, and then they're thinking, well, we just saw him. Is that, is, that then, like, is that fulfilled now? So now we can go to the next step in our eschatological timeline for how these events are supposed to take place? If you think about how the way our, New Test or our Old Testament, our English Old Testament, ends with the book of Malachi, who are the last two names mentioned, the last two proper names mentioned in the book of Malachi? Anyone know? Moses and Elijah. Not Hazel. <laughs> but, you see, Moses and Elijah are the last two names mentioned. And we read at the end of Malachi, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This is a future promise. And so they're asking the right questions. How does Jesus explain to them? He's pointing to his suffering, but he does answer their questions. He says Elijah does come first. In fact, Elijah has already come. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And they did to him whatever they pleased. Matthew adds the uh, extra note that they realized that he was talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the Elijah to come in Malachi. And he has come to prepare the way of the Lord, to make straight the path. 
And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Well, how does John die? Herod and Herodias do as they please. From the request of a, of a daughter, cut his head off. And Jesus is saying, that has been fulfilled. So, your next order of timeline, it is the coming of Elijah preparing the way for the Messiah. So what is next is the suffering of the Son of God. And here's the point Jesus is making to them. That the way to glory goes through death and resurrection. And so Jesus reveals to them that the Son must suffer. It is disclosed to them that they might understand. And they don't. They actually don't get it until he is risen from the dead. But you see the graciousness and the patience of Jesus. Even in Mark, from Mark 8, 9, and 10, he repeats this multiple times, that they might understand. So as we see here, even here in this passage, that the Son's glory is displayed, the Son's identity is disclosed, and the, or the Son's identity is declared, and the Son's suffering is disclosed to them. Let's ask the question, what are we to learn from this? That Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets? Great, that's a great piece of information. But that's not what we're to learn from this. What are we to take away? How are we to make right application in our own lives when we think about Jesus in his glory, Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration? Let me give you three points. Three points of application concerning the things that we see here. And the first is that Jesus deserves our worship because he is worthy. That's what we see here. That Jesus deserves our worship because he is worthy. Why? Because as he lifts the veil, we see the blazing purity of the Son of God. He's perfect in purity. He is the highest and greatest of all beings. Friends, we worship lesser creatures. So when we would make application here of the Son in all of his glory, worship him. Psalm 2, kiss the Son lest he be angry with you. Worship Jesus because to do anything less is to rob the Son of God of the glory that he should receive from your life. Because worship to worship Jesus is a privilege. So that's the first thing we can see there by way of application. Worship him because he is worthy of worship. Second, Jesus deserves our obedience because of who he is. Because he, as the voice from heaven said, he is the beloved son. He is the beloved son of God. Jesus deserves our obedience because of who he is. And Jesus himself requires it. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In the Great Commission, he, said, he tells his disciples, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Jesus deserves our obedience. And when we give Jesus the obedience that he deserves, we find ourselves living in harmony with our created purpose. The purpose for why we were created. We were created to worship. We were created to obey. But even as Christians, there remains in us the remaining sin, the struggle, the tension, the rebellion. Even the thought of, I was created to obey, can sometimes cause this tension. Because in and of ourselves, we want to rule. Why did, why did Adam and Eve fall? Because the enticement was you can be like God. Because, because if you disobey God, you'll be like God. They wanted to be their own masters. They wanted to rule themselves. Autonomy, being autonomous, is not new. 
It's a struggle that everyone will face. But when we submit to the kingship of Jesus because of who he is, we find ourselves living in harmony for God's created purposes. We are created to worship and obey. So therefore, one thing we must do is fight the tendency to rebel, to fight against obedience. Yes, Christians struggle to obey God. It's true. But if you're struggling, that's a good sign. If you're comfortable in disobedience, that's a dangerous sign. And third, by way of application, Jesus deserves our lives because he gave his life for us. And we see in the son's suffering disclosed, he reveals that he was to die and rise. Oh, never let this, beloved, never let this truth fall upon a calloused heart. Or that I've heard this so many times. Jesus came, lived, and died for your salvation. To present you before the Father, before himself with great joy. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That is a beautiful verse. How does the son accomplish this? We know. We know. It is through the cross. It is through the death and resurrection of Jesus that we would receive adoption as sons. God the Father was pleased to cancel the record of debt that stood against us. But he doesn't just cancel it and say, all right, I've wiped the slate clean. No, he nails it to the cross. That's what Paul tells us, that the debt that we owed is nailed to the cross. Not just any cross, the cross of Christ. It is nailed upon him so that we might be forgiven. It was his life for mine. It was the life of Christ for you. And he willingly laid it down. He says, no one takes my life, but I lay it down that I might take it back up again. So we must understand here that Jesus deserves our life because it was his life given. And we must be able to say, he died for me. For me, he died. For you, he died. And so that even on your worst and most sinful days, he died for you. And that sin has been paid for in full. Barrett's not here, so I'll use his name. He gave me, I don't know, a couple years ago, a Christmas gift. And it's this wooden block that sits right underneath of my computer screens. And etched on this wooden block is this quote from A.W. Pink. And as I was sitting there preparing and coming towards the application part of this message, I looked down at that block and I said, thank you, Barrett. This quote, it says, he foresaw my every fall, my every sin, my every backsliding, yet nevertheless fixed his heart upon me. He doesn't die for good people. He dies to present us as good people because of his righteousness. And so he deserves our life, all of our lives, because he gave all of himself for us. So in conclusion, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he deserves our worship. He deserves our obedience. He deserves our lives. He is the worthy Son of God who suffered for sinners because of his great love for us. So let's be done with half-hearted worship. 
Let's be done with low levels of obedience. And let us commit or maybe even recommit our lives to love and to serve him. For he deserves it all. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled. We are thankful. We are grateful for the glory of Christ. He is the beloved Son from all eternity who invaded our world, His world really, and walked among sinners in a sin-cursed world to love, to live, and to die for them, for us, to be raised again. We pray that we would glorify Him in our lives, in our worship, in our obedience. For He deserves it all. He is worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.